Welcome to Season 2, Episode 30 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Mark A. Henry. Mark is the author of Lacking Evidence to the Contrary, and he joins us from his home in Connecticut. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you, Ben. Um, thank you for having me on the show, and um, thank you for all the work that you're doing to uh, help authors like myself uh, get their work out in the world. Tell me about life in Connecticut. Uh, life in Connecticut is great. Um, my uh, my wife and I are recently uh, empty nesters. I have two daughters who are off in college. And um, around this time last year, uh, my wife had a, a pretty serious surgery, uh, which took her uh, months to um, recover and rehab from. And, uh, and thankfully, she's uh, feeling better now, back to 100%. And uh, we're looking forward to a, a fun summer down in one of our fun, uh, our fun favorite places, Jamestown, Rhode Island, which I uh, consider to be a, a magical place. Tell me about magical uh, Jamestown. Oh, sure. Um, uh, for, for one thing, I seem to get a lot of good writing ideas as I pedal my way around the island on my bike. So I think that there is some uh, creativity or artistry floating around in the air uh, because I, uh, I don't seem to get that same kind of inspiration anywhere else. Um, but this is the kind of thing that, that happens in, in Jamestown. This is a, a true story and something I consider fairly magical. Um, one of the things that we like to do when, when the kids were younger is go to uh, tag sales, yard sales. Uh, and every Saturday morning, someone in town would, would have one and uh, you can pick up a used book for 50 cents or a dollar and the kids could pay a quarter for some toys or games or something. And one thing that we always liked to pick up was jigsaw puzzles and we would take them back and uh, work on them on our front porch. And uh, much like the books uh, that you recommended earlier, the puzzles start to pile up faster than one can make them all. So eventually we had a big pile. And one day we pulled one from the pile and dumped it out on the table. And my younger daughter was sorting out the pieces, looking for the, the corners and the edges, you know. And she said, hey, there, there's writing on the back of this puzzle. And this, the script on the back was too big for us to really make it legible from any one piece. So it was clear that we would have to, you know, assemble the puzzle face up. It was a picture of a, a lighthouse on the beach. And only then could we sort of slide something under it and flip it over and then read what was on the back. So as we made the puzzle, we were, our curiosity was building as to what was gonna be revealed on the back side of the puzzle. So we flipped it over and it, it said words to the effect of the solver of this puzzle is the legal claimant of a once great treasure uh, and so on and so forth. And it, I, I do remember the end. It said, the treasure has passed through lands both free and afflicted, through hands both worthy and not, and it came to rest on Jamestown's shores entrusted to the care of Governor Carr's eternal watch which um, sounds like nonsense, but uh, that actually means something in, in Jamestown. And sure enough, uh, my, my daughter and my niece and nephews um, got on the computer and what is considered, I guess, a modern day treasure hunters tool of Google. And they figured out what this meant. And we went to that location and we found another clue and another and another and another until we had gone through about five cycles of clues. And in the end, I think treasure might be overstating it uh, a bit, but we did find a, a prize or a reward at the end. Uh, and um, we never found out who created that puzzle or where it came from, but we in, in turn uh, tried to pass it on to uh, uh, some kids that lived down at the end of the block. Um, but to this day, they have not seemed to crack the first clue. So everything is sitting there in place. We returned all the clues to where they where we found them. And uh, my hope is maybe this summer someone will uh, pick it up and uh, restart the treasure hunt because our family certainly, uh, that was a fond memory we have of 
that place and time when the, when the kids were young, they'll never forget it. That sounds amazing. Do you have some photos of that puzzle? Um, no, because, well, I, well, not, no, no, we have photos. Um, and my daughter could recite all the, uh, all the clues verbatim, I'm sure to this day, the, the puzzle, we, we, we wanted it to appear in someone's life as mysteriously as it appeared in ours. So we went to this house down on the corner and we threw it in their bushes in the middle of the night as if it had fallen from the sky or something. <laughs> um, that may have been a mistake because, um, you know, the puzzle was gone the next day. They clearly picked it up and it said right on it. It's, it's my, my daughter said, we got to make this, you know, obvious to the next person dad. So she put in magic marker, a little asterisk on the box that said, this puzzle contains a real life treasure hunt. <laughs> so uh, I say it's on those kids that uh, either, you know, didn't pay attention when the puzzle fell from the sky into their bushes or they didn't uh, assemble it yet or they did and they couldn't crack the first clue, but I think it's uh, safe to say that uh, they are not gonna find the treasure. So uh, as I said, I wanted it to, uh, to get back out in the world. So anyone who's listening to this podcast, yes, I just gave you the first clue a few minutes ago. And uh, if you find your way to Jamestown, Rhode Island, uh, I wish you luck on the, on the hunt. We will definitely put that clue in the show notes and yeah, hopefully someone finds this treasure. This sounds amazing. Yeah, I, I would love for someone to have the same uh, fun that we had back then. Uh, I have to ask, in the treasure box when you find it, is there a copy of Lacking Evidence the Contrary inside? Um, no, this, this all predated Lacking Evidence to <laughs> the Contrary, but uh, like I said, I do know where they all are, so maybe I could go back and uh, mm. throw an autographed copy in the, uh, in the final uh, clue to uh, cap around the whole thing, yeah. So, uh, just what people would want i'm sure okay well it's almost summer holidays over there i think this is a great challenge for people over the next you know few months let's move on to lacking evidence of country the plot outline is about chris dawkins who ends up accidentally joining a terrorist organization called milf uh by signing terms and conditions online and then he has to escape america and try to clear his name and it's a satire of bureaucracy hysteria politics the FBI, CIA. Do you want to tell us a bit more about your book? Uh, sure. That was all well said, Ben. Thanks for the, uh, the intro. Um, yeah, lacking evidence to the contrary. Um, I uh, think of it as part of the very wide and popular genre of postmodern comic thriller. Uh, you know, it's a little bit of, um, it's sort of built on this framework of like a spy thriller, espionage story. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I made an effort to make it funny and there also is some um you know postmodern satire social commentary in there as well so um if that's what you're into uh we've got it all rolled into one here and um yeah as you said it's uh it takes place in uh the near future where things haven't gotten to a full-on dystopia net yet but we can kind of see the you know the starts of um some trouble coming over the horizon and uh, yeah, the, um, the, the, the plot hinges on, on Chris uh, accidentally signing the terms and conditions uh, as one does for the militant Islamic liberation front. And of course the FBI gets wind of his computer activities and uh, they are uh, sort of desperate to make a big score in the, in the terror case. And they arrest Chris. But meanwhile, the terror organization, unbeknownst to anyone, including some of their own members, they're not really a traditional terrorist organization at all, and that they don't go out and commit acts of violence because that would be costly and dangerous. They uh, prefer just to claim credit for any accident or catastrophe that they see on the news. And uh, they simply get their version of the story out to the media first. And uh, when the gas company or whatever comes up with an explanation for what really happened, it tends to kind of get pushed to the back page. And uh, that's how MILF uh, handles their promotions and, uh, and marketing. And it's uh, very successful for them, although it's uh, a, a secret to the rest of the world. Um, so there's a lot of that sort of uh, willful misinterpretation going on throughout the book as a recurring theme, uh, you know, on, on both sides of the ocean, 
both sides of the law. So um, it's, uh, I used to say to people, uh, you know, it's a, it's a world where nothing is as it seems uh, until I read a quote by Jim Thompson, the uh, American crime writer from the 60s. And his quote is, there is only one plot. Nothing is as it seems. So I stopped doing that. <laughs> it wasn't as original as maybe I, I thought. Um, so yeah, that's the, uh, the nuts and the bolts of the, the book. And meanwhile, while this uh, sort of legal drama is unfolding, uh, I invite the readers to imagine a world where there are competing news networks, one which leans politically conservative and the other one which leans politically liberal. And of course, these networks both get a hold of the same news story, but they uh, have their own uh, agendas and angles to work and uh, they become as big a part of the story as, uh, as our unfortunate friend Chris Dawkins is in the end. Well, uh, Chris, Chris has helped out quite a bit by his, uh, a guy he meets uh, coincidentally who becomes his boss, whose name is Jasper Wiles, who's a millionaire. I guess he's a little bit like Elon or one of those people and also his lawyer, and they both kind of end up helping Chris get out of his situation and try and solve it. Um, do you want to tell us a bit more about those two people? Sure. Uh, as you said, yeah, Jasper Wiles is a, uh, a software tycoon, although he's not a, uh, a super genius like, uh, like Elon Musk uh, claims to be, but um, he's more of a, a student of human nature, and he relies on his charisma and his kind of uh, sense of the marketplace to uh, make his successes in the world. Um, and he is sort of a, a counterbalance to Chris, who is sort of, um, you know, he's intelligent, but he's shy and uncharismatic and uh, does not have a lot of confidence or conviction in himself or anything else. Um, but when he teams up with his, his boss, Jasper Wiles, they sort of, uh, you know, create a, a symbiotic relationship to help each other through the, uh, the troubles that they, they find. And then Biz Miner is Jasper's personal attorney. And, you know, her role in the book is, uh, I think of everybody in this book, as I said, it's in the near future. So therefore everybody is about 20% dumber than we would expect. Uh, with the exception of, of Biz Biner and maybe one or two other characters. So, you know, she stands out as someone who is um, uh, confident in her own intelligence and uh, usually finds herself um, you know, on the right side of an argument um, because uh, she has, uh, you know, she has the, the power of wits over pretty much anybody she, she comes across, including, you said it before, it's a, it's a funny book and I did design it that way. Um, but if you read carefully, you'll find that there is only one character who actually jokes in the book, who actually intentionally sort of, uh, you know, makes a joke in, uh, what, what is the word, uh, diet, dietetic sound. When you hear the sound that the characters here in the movie, she makes a, uh, a dietetic joke, if I'm thinking of that word. Is it properly. dietetic or diegetic? Diegetic. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> Oh, good. Um, I was going to ask you about the country that this terrorist organization is set in because I couldn't find it on the map. Do you want to tell us a bit more about this country? Uh, yes, uh, it's, a, it's a fictional country uh, in Central Asia, uh, which I named Zazaristan. Uh, and in many ways, um, you know, Zazaristan is a, is a mirror of, uh, of America. They um, they do a lot of the same things. Like I didn't create this this foreign land as a uh, a symbol of, of of evil or or you know bad intentions or anything like that. In fact, I kind of went out of my way to um, display the the differences and illustrate the the ways in which we are alike and the um, you know the fact that the the terrorist group has staff meetings on Monday afternoons seemed like almost something that should go without saying, but it's not the impression that, uh, uh, you know, we're given in an action movie where, you know, these, these foreign countries are kind of painted one dimensionally and the people who live in them are only one certain way. So I wanted to create some, some humanity and some universal understanding between the two countries. Although through 
again, the willful, willful misrepresentation of pretty much every party. There is a lot of misunderstanding between them, but um, I tried to give the Zari characters some point of view as well as the American characters so we could kind of hear that, uh, you know, deep down that they share a lot of the same values and, and, and truths, even though uh, those things were hard to come by in the, in the larger world. One of the things I kind of liked about this is occasionally we get these author footnotes just, just chiming into the action in the book. Do you want to tell us a bit about those little footnotes? Uh, yeah, and I will admit that um, those started off as literally what it says in the book, just notes. Like I would be writing uh, and I would be writing, you know, action and, and dialogue and everything else. And then I would come to a part that I just kind of wanted to summarize and get on to the next chapter. So I would write, you know, on my manuscript, author's note, and then I would go on for a paragraph of very like kind of dense exposition about something that was going to happen. Um, but, you know, those eventually all got turned into, you know, fully fleshed out writing eventually in the final drafts. Um, but I, I, I found it funny when they sort of got edited and reduced down to just like a single line or a single word um because it's it's just it's one more sort of level of narration to me you know the the, the characters speak you know the narrator speaks it's a third person narration and that narr narrator is pretty reliable i wouldn't call him unreliable but he, he might uh, obscure a factor or two here and there but then beyond that i i kind of like break the fourth wall and actually address the reader as the author, which is my own voice as Mark A. Henry, as opposed to the author, Mark A. Henry, who's narrating the, the book in the third person. Um, so I don't want to scare anyone off. There's only uh, maybe five or six throughout the books and they stretch from a word to maybe a full sentence. But uh, uh, I, I have to admit, I got a kick out of it when I saw them in that form and I, uh, I decided to keep them in there. Yeah, they're quite funny and they, they break up the text quite nicely and they do give it that kind of meta feeling to it. Um, so yeah, they're good. I was going to ask as well. So obviously it's got very funny aspects to it. It's got these thriller aspects to it as well. Um, did you have any particular influence or inspiration for the book? Um, I would say, you know, this space seemed like a strange answer and we'll get into my specific influences later i think we'll we'll talk about like the books that i enjoyed growing up but um you know this book was kind of it's an influence of of everything i'm trying to make a social comment here so um you know when i describe a courtroom scene that i was inspired by real courtroom scenes or courtroom scenes i've seen in, in movies and when i um you know, write an action sheet scene that's, you know, inspired by, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger movies from 1986 or something like that. Um, so I didn't think of it as the, the writing inspired by any one writer. Um, you know, there's, there's plenty of funny writers out there and I, I hesitate to, you know, list my work next to theirs, but you know, from Kurt Vonnegut to Joseph Heller to, uh, you know, um, Bill Bryson and Carl Hyacin, you know, there, there are funny books out there, which I love and enjoy. So, um, you know, seeing it done, you know, seeing them put humor on the page that way, I mean, certainly inspired me and informed my love of reading and, and books. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of that, that, that leaked in here. Um, just because that's all, you know, that's, that's, that's formed in my brain as what, you know, reading and writing should be. So it would be hard for me to do otherwise if I sat down to, to write something. Tell me about uh, your journey with publishing. And I want to hear a bit more about your opinion of the publishing industry at the moment. Um, sure. Um, as I said, I, this, this, this was a first time novel for me, which explains why there were so many uh, rambling author's notes in my first draft. I, I really didn't know what I was doing uh, as a writer, um, but I had spent a, a lifetime as a, as a reader, certainly, and I, I felt familiar with, uh, with the whole form that I thought of, uh, you know, taking my shot at it. So when it came time to 
get the book finished. I had my, my manuscript done and um, I, I knew enough that uh, I needed to uh, have it edited and, um, you know, basically, you know, cleaned up, reviewed some, you know, I had beta readers and um, there's a funny story about uh, when I first wanted to get edited, there's people on the internet that will edit your books you know, as a, as a, as their freelance editors and you can just email them your book and you will exchange a, a fee. Um, so when I was first trying to find an editor, I certainly didn't know anybody personally that would, that would do it. Um, I, there was a woman that said she would, you know, edit the first five pages of your book for free as sort of like a test, you know, uh, like a, a, a trial for the both of you. Right. Um, so I said, well, I have nothing to lose there. So I emailed her the first five pages and a couple of days goes by and she emails them all back and at every single joke and there's you know over those five pages i mean there's six or eight ten maybe um she just wrote a question mark next to all of them like saying i don't get this <laughs> well, this is not a good sign um but what, what that told me is you, you know she literally did not share my literal sense of humor like she did not get the jokes and, you know, no matter how talented an editor she might have been, you know, I was not reaching her with my voice, if to, if to put it uh, in, a, in a way. So eventually, uh, I found another uh, online operation that would edit my book. And this one came with a lot of uh, sort of application forms. And, uh, you know, you send a synopsis. And they, they really made an effort to match your editor with your, your genre, your work. So uh, at that point, I felt pretty confident that... Um, at least, uh, you know, I'd be, I'd be reaching someone who, uh, you know, was, was more on my wavelength, so to speak. And um, I, I put a lot of weight on this edit. I won't lie to you. When it, it came back, you know, there was a, you know, a, a file full of all the, the edits and changes and corrections. And then there was five or six pages of sort of editorial notes. And, um, I remember thinking like if this person who was really the first, you know, not the first stranger who would be reading my work and, you know, they're doing it for a fee, obviously, but at the same time, they have a reputation as someone who is, you know, has to recognize and create good literature. So I didn't feel like they would just be, you know, blowing smoke up my, you know, what with their responses. Um, so I, I put a lot of stock in this person's, sort of, um, you know, his critique of my ability, let's just say, you know, is this book good? Um, and when it came back, I will probably never forget what he wrote on the first page, because after, after my experience with that first editor, I made a point to say to the second editor, it's supposed to be funny, there's humor in the book. Um, so uh, at least he knew what he was getting into. And he wrote back and he said, if, as you said, the humor is the main point of this book. You have succeeded spectacularly. And that was like a great rush of, you know, relief and, and, and confidence because um, I thought the book was good, but you have no way of knowing if anyone else would think it. And, uh, you know, this person was tangentially related to the publishing and book industry. So I thought, well, you know, his opinion must mean more than, uh, you know, your mom, let's say, right. You know, someone who, who knows you will not always give you a, a, an honest answer. Um, so beyond that, he had plenty of corrections and revisions that needed to be done. Uh, and I, uh, I took to those and got it finished up. And um, then eventually uh, I gave it another run through with um, uh, Maura McGurk, who's become my uh, sort of my own editor. And um, someone she's someone I went to high school with, but I had not known she had the talent to edit books before I, I sent her mine. Um, but um, she really put a high shine on everything. And uh, I felt that we really collaborated into something that was ready to be published. You know, I, I had vetted it to smart people and professional people and, uh, you know, my own sense of belief in it. And I thought, well, there's nothing left to do now, but to package this manuscript up and send it to New York, where I will no doubt be drinking booze out of some agent's desk by the end of the month after they get a load of this, right? So uh, that didn't happen quite as I had envisioned. Um, what I 
did was um, through manuscriptwishlist.com, which is a resource for, for, for new writers, if people don't know what that is. Um, there's just a database of um, hundreds, if not thousands of agents, and it lists their their genres and their likes and dislikes. So um, as someone who's, who's querying, right, we'll um, call it the, uh, the, the literary term of uh, sending out your work, you find an agent who is seems like they would be compatible with your manuscript you send it to them and they will in turn accept it or not accept it and then bring it to publishers and uh i thought that would be that it would it would be a pretty simple straightforward process turns out i was very uh naive about that or maybe um overconfident in my own abilities or something but um after emailing um and submitting to about 50 agents uh i got only a handful of rejections back um and this is after of course a few months and they all said some version of this is not the right fit for us um which by that time i had been you know listening to a lot of publishing podcasts and following a lot of publishing people on twitter so i'm just trying to learn about this business uh, that hopefully i was going to be a, a part of um and then when the the not the right fit responses came back um you know i didn't take that as a uh you know an, an insult or a uh, you know, a commentary on my writing ability. I took it on its face value. I thought, you know, maybe it's not the right fit for a traditional publisher. I mean, they have, um, you know, algorithms and sales histories that tell them the kind of books that sell for them. And um, my book did not fall into that category. I think it's as, as simple as that. I, never, I don't begrudge anybody for, for trying to make a buck. And I don't mean this to uh, uh, sound like I'm railing against the injustices of the publishing world um you know our work was simply not compatible and um that was that so on to plan b and these days you know plan b uh is a pretty good plan back you know when i was a kid you would see a, a self-published book and it would look like a spiral notebook that's kind of stacked on the counter of the, the get local gas station or something um because that was the only way you could literally publish a book it was a you know, kind of beyond the the reach and the means of the average person. But, um, you know, now we have Amazon. And uh, I, I hear your listeners gasping at the mention of their name, Ben, but the uh, the truth is, you know, they, I, I formed my own publishing company. Um, and Amazon prints my books for a fee and then ships them wherever they want to go, including if someone orders it through an independent bookshop, you know, it's available worldwide through, uh, through Ingram. And, um, you know, in the end, I found like publishing the book by myself was the right move. I learned a lot. And um, this, this kind of occurred to me recently. I laughed like the, you know, the publishing industry, the, the literature world, uh, you know, they love to tell you not to use the past passive voice, but then they tell you, that you have to have your book published. So um, to reject the passive voice, I said, I will publish my book. I will not have my book published. So um, that's my joke about publishing. So, I, you know, it all turned out for the best. You know, there is a um, drawback to the independent publishing world. You know, one is um, is sort of, tangible, which is, you know, you lose out on the access and resources of a big publishing company for the purposes of marketing and promotion. Um, and then there's the, um, uh, you know, the sort of reputation that independent books have that, you know, they're of poor quality and, um, you know, they are only, uh, you know, they were rejected because of their, their quality or their lack of merit which in some cases is true, but in some cases it isn't. And I would argue that the reverse is true as well. There are various qualities of, of books traditionally published um, based on, you know, their sellability and not necessarily their merit. So it's a, it's a mixed bag out there. And uh, we were just talking before about finding you know, gems out there and uh, they're, they're out there and they are both traditionally published and independently published. It's, uh, it's just up to the reader to, uh, to sort through and find them. And again, this is how I, uh, you know, come to commend you for doing the good work that you do, helping us sort through all the, all the rocks to find the gems out there. 
sometimes it's fun to find the rocks like you know like el james or you know or or some dinosaur porn novella i think you know sometimes there is merit yeah. to, to the shit that's out there one man's rock is another man's gem that's right <laughs> for that model of publishing um i'm actually surprised because in the past i think self-published books have really looked like self-published books like and that and that comes down to cover art and comes down to page stock and all of those kind of things but your book and a lot of the self-published work I've seen recently looks highly professional look like it's come out of a you know a decent publishing house can you tell us a bit more about that process uh sure and, and thank you for, for saying that I take that as a, as a high compliment um uh, well, again, I had experience with two uh, distributors slash printers. Uh, Ingram uh, prints and distributes my hardcover book, and Amazon does the paperback um, and, and Kindle and uh, uh, audiobook version. So when it comes to, you know, choosing the materials, yes, I think there's there's two choices of cover material. I, I think one's like glossy and one is matte basically. Uh, and then there's a dozen or more sizes you can choose from, from a like a four by six, you know, a small sort of, you know, trade paperback to like a large 12 by 14 inch kids book, maybe, you know, like a big, a uh, big picture book. Um, and you can choose a couple um, different paper stocks and um, as far as the, the cover design and the, the font inside, that's all user generated. You could um, you know, do it yourself if you're artistically or graphically minded, or in my case, my, my editor, Maura, she's also a talented fine artist. So I had her uh, create the, uh, the cover and the logo for the book. Um, and then you just simply upload it and um, they'll, check it for, for quality, make sure it's, you know, formatted correctly. I'm talking about Amazon now. And um, then it's, uh, it's just ready to uh, fly off the shelves. That's all there is to it. So again, the, there's a wide range of um, quality, but they are not in the business of, you know, vetting people's creativity. They just want to uh, make a buck by printing the book and then hopefully selling them later on. I wanted to ask you as well, so this is your first novel. What got you into, I guess, the world of writing? Um, well, my, my former career before this was a stay-at-home dad. So um, I had, uh, before that, I worked in the television business. But just recently, as I said before, my, my two daughters um, have uh, left the nest and I uh, have more time on my hands. So... Uh, I was trying to smoothly uh, transition from stay-at-home dad to stay-at-home author. And, uh, you know, when, when the time came, I started thinking about uh, book ideas. I'd always been a big reader. And, um, you know, after you read a few thousand books, you sort of feel like you might be able to, uh, you know, follow this formula and do something uh, interesting on your own. So, that's uh, that's what I did. I sat, sat down in like early 2017 and uh, you know, kind of worked on it for uh, for three years or so. I would you know go to the library a couple of mornings a week and uh, sit there with my coffee and my headphones and kind of squeeze it out drop by drop. And tell me about your exciting work collecting garbage as well. Oh yes, yeah. so I didn't mention that um, my my brother-in-law owns a garbage company. And uh, I'm the, the backup driver. So uh, a couple days a week, uh, usually uh, Mondays and Fridays, I'm out there uh, on the route, uh, sometimes driving the truck. Sometimes I get the, uh, the fun part, which is hanging off the back and jumping to uh, grab the cans. He's very old school. He doesn't have the thing where the, the big arm comes out the side of the truck and, and dumps it. Um, sometimes I am that mechanism that gets off the truck and then dumps the garbage. But uh, like I said, it's, uh, it's fresh air and exercise and uh, helping out the family. So uh, it's something I'm, uh, I'm happy to do and uh, we'll be doing for uh, the foreseeable future. I assume this isn't a way of saying that you're in the mafia, right? 
Uh, yeah, you're not supposed to say it out loud, but uh, yeah, I'm touching my nose right now to signal that uh, yes, we are, <laughs> we are speaking the same language. <laughs> Excellent. Um, now, I know at the moment you're writing quite a few hours a day, but what are you writing on at the moment? What are you working on? Um, readers of my first book might remember that uh, early on during a, a section of exposition, the one of the characters says, we don't want a repeat of the Honolulu situation, do we? Um, so the second book is going to be entitled The Honolulu Situation, and it's a, uh, a prequel in the universal timeline to lacking evidence to the contrary. It takes place in the same world. Um, but it doesn't share the main characters. It's just sort of tangentially related character-wise. And um, I, I'm planning for either book to be, uh, you know, enjoyed separately or in any order. Like the, the, the first book in the timeline will have been released second. So at some point, someone could pick that one up and read it first. And then uh, the book that was published first. But um, either way, they should hopefully be enjoyable on their own. And, uh, yeah, just, I'm, I'm, well, I'm, I'm more than a year away from getting that one done. So I won't even speculate as to when it might be coming out, but, uh, it's, uh, it's getting closer by the day. Okay. Before we move on, do you have any advice for writers trying to get their work out there? Um, sure. Well, I mean, my advice is to, uh, you know, first of all, read, you know, the, the, you, you have to, uh, uh, you know, kind of understand and sort of internalize, you know, that, that rhythm of, of literature and, and what it means to, uh, you know, express a thought on the page. So that's sort of like a, a macro piece of advice. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's a big undertaking. It's a big job. It's, it's, it sounds like it's, easy because you know the tool that you use to do it is sitting right in front of you almost all the time and uh you know all the all the letters and all the words surely it's just a matter of arranging them in the right order and uh, a great work could spring from your fingertips um but uh you know writing a book takes a long time it's like assembling a uh, a giant puzzle piece by piece and then trying to assemble the puzzle and then finding that half the pieces don't fit so you have to go back and reshape those pieces and um it's uh it's a it's a big kind of tedious job but uh fortunately i enjoy big tedious pieces of work so you, you i guess you have to have a, a temperament to uh to be patient with yourself and um you know keep uh keep working even if you feel like you've maybe uh hit a dead end or um your inspiration has uh, has run out but um, in that case, I always would advise people to, you know, you know, if you think your life is hard, imagine what your characters are going through, like take inspiration from the struggles of your own characters. And if, if they can solve their problems and see their way through life, surely you can, uh, you can do the same as the author who is simply writing the words that uh, create that world that the characters live in. That's an interesting idea. That could be like method writing. You could put yourself in a prison cell and write from there. Yeah, uh, well, uh, I'll let you know. Uh, yeah, now that you've outed me as a member of the mafia, Ben, I'll tell you how that works in, uh, in three to six months once I'm, uh, <laughs> so I'm indicted for racketeering. <laughs> Lovely. All right, let's move on to your gateway books. What were some of the books that uh, pulled you into the world of literature? Um, when, when you say gateway books, I, and I, so I listen to your podcast all the time and I always think back to like literally the first books I can remember uh reading when I was a kid uh, I read a lot of like uh Robert Newton Peck and Clifford B Hicks and uh Bertrand Brindley uh they all seem to be sort of I don't know if someone was selecting these books for me but they're all sort of you know I wouldn't call them boy adventure books but they were just you know boy books of these uh you know, kids solving uh, minor mysteries and crimes by their wits and, uh, you know, living in the, in the 50s and, and 60s, which, you know, when I was in the, growing up in the 70s and 80s, like those were the old books that were in the library that we, that we were getting. Um, so uh, I did enjoy, you know, that kind of ignited my love of reading. 
And, you know, it's not great literature. They're just very straightforward stories. But I always just enjoyed sort of the process of, of reading. Um, my, my dad had this uh, VW bug repair manual in the house. And it had this cool picture on the cover of like a, it was like a cartoon, uh, you know, this, this guy fixing his VW. And I always thought that was a kid's book because it had a cartoon on it. So I would read that. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying I was super smart at the time, Ben, but I'm saying I just read a lot. So um, I was uh, a voracious reader. And then you know, when I got to um, high school and college, you know, that's when I really started appreciating you know, literature in the sense that, you know, you can hear someone's, you know, voice in the writing. Uh, and I, I think the first guy that that sort of, you know, lit up a part of my brain in that way was, was Kurt Vonnegut. Um, you know, he has such a, uh, such a unique voice. And also in a lot of his books, he kind of comes right out and says, I am an author. I am writing this book. This is a story I'm about to tell you. Uh, and it's very direct and simple. And it sort of like draws you again, one, one layer closer to the, the author, you know, not just reading uh, the words of some, you know, nameless narrator, like Kurt Vonnegut is writing this book. He's telling me a story. Um, and they were funny. And I, you know, I really uh, was kind of blown away when I first read like uh, how, how different his books were than anything I had read before. You know, he really sort of, um, you know, pioneered that uh, sort of postmodern satire that I guess I'm still kind of emulating to this day uh, on my best days. And, uh, you know, when, when I think of someone who introduced me to literature, it, it would have to be uh, Vonnegut and everybody else sort of gets in line behind him. Okay, very cool. Um, what books are you currently reading or recently enjoyed or looking forward to? Um, I'm currently reading uh, The Candy House by Jennifer Egan, um, which is a sequel to A Visit from the Goon Squad, which came out uh, eight or 10 years ago, which I really enjoyed. And when I, when I learned that The Candy House was a sequel, I, I kind of ran out and got it because uh, she's so great at weaving timelines and characters together. I wanted to see how she would do it over the course of two books rather than just one. So uh, I started reading it and then uh, a few pages in, I ran across you know, the mention of a character who had been in the previous book. And I said, I'm, I'm enjoying this book too much. Do not get the full experience out of it. So I put the candy house aside. I went back and I read a visit from the goon squad, sort of refresh myself on all the, the characters and the timelines and everything. Uh, so now I can proceed with the, the candy house uh, and uh, try to get every uh, last bit out of it. Cause it is one of those books that uh, you dread when the, you get past halfway and you know, you're closer to the end than the finish. Uh, so I'm trying to savor that one. Um, another book I recently read is uh, Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doerr, uh, which is, uh, it's a great sort of love letter to books in the written word told over the course of 500 years. Uh, that was good. Um, uh, I, I, I should give uh, mention to a couple of the authors I found through your podcast. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, The Recalcitrant Stuff of Life by Sean McCallum. Uh, and there's uh, there's sort of a, a companion book to that. Do you know the one I'm talking about? Uh, I'm thinking about, it's Tommy White's book. Yes, right. So again, yeah, you <laughs> I thought you would uh, recognize that. Yeah, those two go together. Uh, mm. So yeah, I read Tommy Waits, Any Day You Can Die. Uh, and I think those guys are actually doing a uh, a signing or a book reading yeah. or a, a bar call or something next month, which uh, I'm sorry to, we'll have to, to miss that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, they, uh, I love their books. I look forward to anything more that those two come out with. Um, and um, look at my notes here. Yeah. Oh, the other thing that I'm reading, and this is going off the board a little bit, but the, in, in the, process of researching my, my new book, I, I wanted to look up some procedure uh, in like an, an army field manual. And the army's survival field man manual is a very compelling read. It, it says, uh, I wrote down some of the notes because they're so, uh, they're sort of written in these second person uh, statements that'll say, your imagination must take over when your kit wears out, which 
that's very true in the literal sense when you're out in the wilderness and your survival kit wears out, but it's also very true in everyday life. Yeah, I, I found a lot of kind of profound meaning in that. Um, and then it'll say, and this is all meant to be read, I am assuming while you're huddling in your lean-to somewhere out in the forest, uh, you know, trying to uh, determine which uh, insects are edible and stuff. And so it, it reads, all of us were born kicking and fighting to live, but we have become used to the soft life. We have become creatures of comfort. We dislike inconveniences and discomforts. What happens when we are faced with a survival situation with its stresses, inconveniences, and discomforts? This is when the will to live, placing a high value on living, is vital. Vanquish, fear, and panic. <laughs> Not about you, but I get a kick out of that kind of writing, and it's uh, it's meant to be very practical and uh, face value. But uh, I think we could say the same thing about writing or podcasting or pretty much any endeavor that uh, your imagination must take over when your kit wears out and uh, things like that. So uh, anyway, that's uh, probably not one that is going to show up on the bestseller list anytime soon. But uh, as I said, I, the more I, I read it, I did get a kick out of it as a uh, as a piece of uh, sort of faux literature. I think those little mantras, I think you should make like a desk calendar and sell that, the Mark A. Henry desk calendar with those mantras on it. That's a genius, yeah, in, in partnership with the U.S. Army. But then you make half of them up on your own. That's true. Yeah, I should yeah. probably, uh, I'll get top billing there. I'll, I'll make sure I, I get most of them and uh, yeah. I'll only crib from the survival manual and, That's right. uh, here and there. And slip a few in from the Volkswagen repair manual as well. Yes, right, right. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of pearls on that one too. <laughs> All right. Are there some carte blanche authors for you? Are there authors who you'd go out and buy their book as soon as it came out? Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to... Uh, Mohsen Hamid's next book. I know he has one that is actually in the works. Um, uh, same goes for Colson Whitehead. I think he's coming out with a sequel to the Harlem Shuffle, which I, uh, I read not long ago and I really enjoyed. Um, and um, there, there's one guy, do you know David Schaefer? I don't expect you to. Is he the person who used to be on the Letterman show? Or is that a different shape? You're thinking of Paul, Paul Schaefer as the, yeah. the, the band leader. Okay, so anyway, David Schaefer is an author and uh, he wrote a book, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna mention it in my top 10 in a few minutes, but um, he's always on my watch list when I see, you know, lists of books that are coming out for the summer or, you know, the, the next uh, books of the season. Um, because I really enjoyed his book, number one, and I would, I would read anything that he, he came out with next. But in the book, one of the characters is an author and at one point, the author who has written a single successful book, he says he's approached by this agent who wants to you know, sign him to a, a onerous contract. And he says, I've said all I've had to say. And then the agent says, what are you, chicken? She kind of goads him and berates him into signing this contract, kind of, uh, you know, um, playing to his, uh, you know, male pride. And of course, that begins his his downfall. So it's the you say one book, that's all you have to say, uh, and then the second book is nothing but trouble. So I wonder if if David Schaefer is sort of acting that out in real life because he he sort of gave us the roadmap in his own book as a character. Like maybe he's just going to write one book, uh, and his refusal to write a second is again sort of the uh, the meta commentary of this Easter egg that he uh, he put his character through. So. Every summer, uh, I look forward to seeing his book, but I'm also sort of satisfied when I see it's not there because I think he's just playing a joke on us. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Mark A. Henry. This episode is sponsored by Operation Dodecahedron, global domination through the influence of thought, language, and culture. We also sell t-shirts. Learn more and submit at operationdodecahedron.com. We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Mark's Top 10. Number one is The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Um, and there's not much I can say about this book to, uh, to add to... Uh, you know, the, the literal volumes of, of criticism and praise that have been uh, heaped on it. Um, but I, I will, if you'll 
indulge me, I'm going to read a, one of my favorite few lines from each of these books. Um, when Nick Carraway first goes to visit Daisy, she says to him, I'll tell you a family secret, she whispered enthusiastically. It's about the butler's nose. Do you want to hear about the butler's nose? And Carraway says, that's why I came over tonight. <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very underrated sort of dry, sarcastic line, which is hard to get across in print. Um, so I, I give Fitzgerald a lot of credit for putting that in there, assuming people will get it because Daisy certainly does not. It's also a great way to illustrate the characters. Like we now know that uh, Caraway is sort of a dry, sarcastic guy and that Daisy does not get the joke at all. She just continues with her story. It goes right over her head. So we sort of understand like what she's about too. She's not really interested in, um, you know, what uh, someone else might think of as a witty comment. She just uh, Keeps going. blows right past her and, and goes on to her own thing. Um, so that was uh, one of my favorite moments from, from uh, Great Gatsby. Um, next, and I think we may have mentioned this uh, briefly earlier, Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. Um, and again, these are books that came out in the, the, the 60s. And I feel like they just must have blown people's minds when they first read this because it's so, um, you know, it's so unique and such a, a strange way of telling a, a story. Um, and, you know, the, there's, there's no question that I'm influenced by this book. I think as anyone who has written a book, you know, that has attempted any kind of satire or humor in the last 50 years, uh, there is something in Catch-22 that has, you know, that began that uh, uh, long history of, um, you know, humor and, and satire in, in the 20th century America. Um, you know, there's a part in this book where uh, the character Clevenger goes on trial and he's found guilty simply because he's accused of it. And, you know, I use that in my book, you know, again, that's a something they were thinking about and doing in the in the 60s and you know we see it today in the 2020s just as much and it is uh sort of that absurd commentary on life that um it seems funny and it's only frightening when you realize how close it is to reality you know you were just you know one step away from this sort of upside down uh dystopia um but then at the end like like heller says when yosarian is about to desert he, he says are you afraid? And he says, no. And then he says, yes, I am afraid. And they say, well, that's good. Being frightened lets you know you're alive, which again, that's a great, uh, we'll put that on maybe on somewhere in mid-January in the calendar, Ben. Uh, <laughs> that's a uh, you know, great little aphorism that, uh, you know, refers to army officers and, uh, you know, writers alike. Um, so book number three is God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater by Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, you know, I could have put a lot of his books on this list, but um, I find that this book is, uh, you know, in my opinion, Vonnegut at his most Vonnegut-y. Um, you know, he does that thing at the beginning where he says, I'm about to tell you a story. It's a story about this. And then he just kind of goes on and, you know, the absurd satire and the, uh, the humor is um, it's just, you know, top notch. And I heard someone on your podcast a couple of weeks ago who was also you know credited Vonnegut as one of their favorites say that he wrote very slowly and almost you know would produce a final draft uh, on his first run through because even a single sentence could take him an hour or more as he you know had to pick the uh you know just the perfect word for, for each sentence so again that, that tells you you know if you want to write a book at this level that is the the time and care that you have to take and put into it um, but when he describes the, the, the charter of the Rosewater Foundation as a Baroque masterpiece of legal folder roll, um, like you can't do better than that. That's, I, I hope that sentence, I hope it didn't take him two seconds. I hope it, I hope he worked on that for 20 hours because, uh, you, you can't do better as a description of a sort of, a you know, Byzantine legal document that uh, charts the fortune of this this great American family. So uh, God bless you, Mr. Rosewater, and God bless you, Mr. Vonnegut. Um, the next book I have, and uh, this is actually the just the first book in a four-book volume called The Jerusalem Quartet. Um, and uh, are you familiar with this guy, Edward Whittemore? 
Yeah, I've, it's one of those things that's been on my list for years and I've never actually, okay. I've never actually seen it in a shop, but I've, yeah, never picked it up. Well, good look at the cover. It has like a, 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 a bronzed yeah. muffled statue holding a, a spear, which I'm not sure what that has to do with the book. This is a, <laughs> it's a very bizarre, <laughs> these books are wild. The, uh, the cover, I quote from the cover, an epic hashish dream from the New York Times book review. Um, and the, the, the four volumes sort of cover a sort of an alternate history of the Middle East. Um, the, the author was a, a CIA agent in the Middle East in the 50s and 60s, and he wrote these books in the, in the 70s. Um, and, and this one, Sinai Tapestry, it kind of uh, charts like the beginning or, or rather the discovery of like an alternate Bible. And then it kind of turns into like almost like an espionage tale where the thing kind of gets passed back and forth and different characters come in. Um, but uh, let me just give you a little taste of Edward Whittemore, Ben, so you know what you're in for. And then, you know, maybe you can, uh, the next time you pass it in the shop, you can either pick it up or walk right by. This is describing the college years of one of the, uh, the main characters, Plantagenet Strongbow. Uh, the undergraduate society had been founded in 1327 to mourn the passing of Edward II after a hot poker had been thrust up the king's anus. Through legacies, the society had gradually grown in wealth until its endowments surpassed those of any private institution in Britain. It supported numerous orphanages and hospitals and commissioned portraits of its members in the National Gallery. The protection it provided its members was absolute and perpetual. If a member happened to die in a remote corner of the empire, his body was immediately pickled in the finest cognac and brought home at the society's expense. Among its alumni were kings and prime ministers, scores of bishops and battalions of admirals and generals, as well as many country gentlemen who had never been known for anything other than certain eccentric dealings with their valets. The alumni of the Secret Seven, in short, constituted the richest and most influential old boy network in the land. Of all the masturbation societies in the public schools and universities of England, none could match its enduring prestige. <laughs> masturbation society, so, I mean, there you go. Yes, so uh, that, that goes on for another thousand or so pages over the four <laughs> books. So <laughs> forewarned is, is forearmed, Ben. Um, so I, I like that book just because it's so like nutty and wild it's uh it's it's quite a uh, it's quite a ride and i i don't even remember i think i found that on uh i think i typed in something wrong like i typed in whittemore as a, as a typo and I, I sort of clicked on that by accident so like we talked about before but like finding a gem i i literally uh stumbled across that uh on the internet it was an old dusty pile of books in someone's attic but it was uh sort of a serendipitous find for me um the next book I had is is this book, Prep, by Curtis Sittenfeld, um, and uh, this is a book I read when my kids were very young. My daughters were very young, like like babies, tots. And um, Sittenfeld has such a great female voice and is such a powerful descriptor of the intricate mechanism of the female mind that it, it's it, it put a little scare in me i'll be honest like knowing that my children would one day you know grow to uh you know be teenagers and and young women in this world and, and thankfully they've surpassed my wildest expectations but uh i do remember this book as a great sort of uh um you know look into the uh the, the mind of the of the female and uh she, she does a fantastic job with uh with everything uh in that book that sticks with me to this day um the next one i have is um well again i'm going to go off the board a little bit and say th this is a non-fiction book it's, it's called the life and times of the thunderbolt kid by bill bryson and i won't go into describing it other than to say it's it's just sort of a memoir of him growing up in the 50s and it is probably the funniest book i've ever read if, if you had to ask me that is the single funniest book just between his uh his writing style and his anecdotes and it kind of uh as he grows up you know he's uh surveying the you know american and world landscape at the same time in the 50s and uh it's it is somewhat informative but hilariously funny um after that we have uh the book i mentioned earlier whiskey tango foxtrot by david schaefer um this is a great sort of uh a puzzle of a book. I said, like, I feel like there's a, uh, 
uh, a little Easter egg in there waiting for us in terms of Schaefer's future productivity. Now, I've never seen him comment or mention anything about that. Maybe it's just something that uh, exists in my own mind, but um, this, uh, this book has a great line in the beginning describing a, a different character who's kind of struggling through life and he's listening to his inner monologue as he berates himself for sort of being a failure and a loser. And he says the words, how do you care about something more than yourself? And in, in the context of the, the scene, it's like he's asking himself a rhetorical question. Like, he, like, why would you care for, about something more than yourself? Like, what a silly notion. Like, I'm struggling just to keep it together myself. There's no way I could be responsible for anything beyond, you know, what's happening, uh, you know, in my own body. But then, you know, over his, his arc in the story, um, he sort of finds meaning in uh, connection with some other people. And when you go back to that line, it, on, on the second reading of the book, you read that line as, how do you care about something more than yourself? Is this, as if he's asking himself, how do I reach this state of becoming something greater than myself? Like, so the, the line has two meanings based on sort of the emphasis uh, you put on it as you would pronounce it out loud. But um, he, Schaefer plays a neat trick on you by making it lean toward one emphasis when you read it the first time and then a different emphasis when you read it the second time. So uh, I uh, applaud him and commend him for that because uh, that's some uh, some high level stuff there in my opinion. Uh, the next book, speaking of high level, uh, Exit West by Mohsen Hamid. Uh, and this is the story of uh, a young couple who's in love in a sort of a crumbling country that's being torn apart by war. And uh, to Hamid's credit, the, the book sort of turns into a magical reality or magical realism, I should say, uh, because at one point the, the couple is, um, you know, just hiding uh, in their in their room to avoid the, the shelling. And then the next is they're passing through a magical portal in the back of a dentist office to transport to another place in the world. And it seems completely plausible and realistic the way that Hamid explains it and uh, he sort of eases you into it so generally it's a, it's a real uh, masterwork of, uh, of description and sort of precision um, in his writing and uh, yeah it's a very uh, uh, again I would read anything that uh, Mohsen Hamid wrote that's uh, the best phrase I can give that. Um, this ninth book is Pachinko by Minjin Lee. And this was um, recommended to me by one of my daughters. And uh, I, I love a story of, uh, you know, a long sort of multi-generational epic because in, in most stories, the, you know, the characters' motivations or their, their backstory is described in a single sentence. And you think, oh, that must've been hard when their parents were, carried off by that tornado or whatever. Um, but in this book, you actually know the character's parents because you read about them 100 pages early and you know about their parents because you read about the grandparents. So it's a, it's a very rich telling of a generational tale and uh, um, she is full of um, also great uh, observations of, of human nature. She's very, uh, very insightful. And the last book I have is Apartment by Teddy Wayne. And um, Teddy Wayne has written a few books and he uh, sort of specializes in books about sort of social misfits uh, and they're, they're written in the first person. So the, the reader gets this interesting perspective on what it's like to kind of, you know, churn with anxiety and desperation inside, but you also have to present a, you know, likable and productive face on the outside. Um, and he, he does that very well. and. Uh, I also have a soft spot for this book because it's set in 1990s New York City, which uh, I've uh, explored quite extensively from uh, uh, one neon bar sign to the next. And uh, I, I, I just want to read you one uh, line from this book and then we can, we can wrap it up. Uh, this describes the, the main character uh, at a bar with some of his friends. He says, I wasn't uncomfortable at all, even when Naomi shouted to Claire, we're fucking dancing in New York City right now, because cringingly overeager sentiment of a tourist, though it was, it crystallized the vodka clear epiphany we were all having. Nearly all of one's time is spent not dancing in New York City. 
is instead wasted on working, on commuting, on shampooing and flossing and scraping food off pots. And to have those two variables combined in the April of one's life, if just for an hour, is worth venerating. So that kind of tugged at my 90s nostalgic heartstrings when I read that, but uh, it's, it's true for uh, any two variables one wants to put in there. I think uh, we uh, probably spend more time flossing and washing and shampooing than we would, we would like. So we should, uh, uh, again, venerate those times when we find ourselves out in the world doing something else. Brilliant. Thank you very much for sharing that list. I am definitely going out to buy the David Shaver today, I think. That sounds great. Yeah, yeah, please do. I, I think you'll uh, I think you'll love it and uh, yeah, enjoy. Excellent. Okay. Well, we should wrap it up. But before we do, do you want to tell us where we can get in touch with you online and where we can buy your excellent book, Lacking Evidence of the Contrary? Sure. Uh, everything online for me is Mark A. Henry Books. It's at Mark A. Henry Books, Twitter and Instagram, facebook.com slash Mark A. Henry Books, Mark A. Henry Books at gmail.com. And as far as where to buy it, um, I want to give special uh, plug to my two favorite and most supportive independent bookstores. Uh, one is here in Connecticut, right in Glastonbury. It's Riverbend Bookshop. Uh, please say hello to uh, Megan and Audrey and uh, Ernio and Taryn and Tess and Annie and Em and everybody else down there. They have um, really been supportive of me and uh, I, I, I probably... Uh, um, spend more time in there than I should, but I can't stay away. And then the other bookstore I would highly recommend is in Jamestown, Rhode Island. And that's called Curiosity and Company. And um, this is a new store that just recently opened and they uh, have a great selection of uh, books and vinyl and coffee and booze. So there's uh, plenty to uh, divert yourself with if you uh, ever find yourself in Jamestown, Curiosity and Company. And then anyone can order it online at bookstore.org. Excellent. Okay. Well, thank you very much for joining me. Looking forward to reading your next book when it comes out. And yeah, I hope everyone goes out and has a read of Lacking Evidence of the Contrary. It's uh, really funny and you've done a great job with it. I appreciate that, Ben. Thank you very much, brother. Thanks for joining me. Thanks once again to Mark A. Henry. Check out the show notes for all the details, including clues to a real-life treasure hunt on Jamestown, Rhode Island. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at beyondzeropod, and you can email us at beyondzeropod at gmail.com. Don't forget to sign up to our Substack, launching June 30. Go to Substack and search Beyond the Zero. We'll see you for your next episode next week.